of independent thought my name is desmond price no matter where you are in the world i want to thank you for giving me a few minutes of your day to hear my thoughts as always we have a great show for you today now here are our topics hello everyone welcome back to another episode of independent thought my name is desmond price for today's episode we are joined by a special panel of guests it is not too often that I get to be joined by so many other wonderful human beings, but thank you all for coming back onto the show today. We are joined by Mr. Lloyd Ogden, who's been on the show several times now. I believe this is now your fourth appearance? No, fifth appearance on Independent Thought. Welcome back to the show, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Desmond. I'm glad to be here. And yeah, I think uh, your math checks out. It's better than my math, so. <laughs> well, you know, little by little, learn how to count, right? So, and we are also joined today by Mr. Hunter Coleman, who is now making his third appearance, I believe. Trying to keep my math together here. Welcome back to the show, Hunter. Oh, silence from Hunter. Uh, Thanks, man. Good to be here. (laughs) And making her debut episode, Miss Carissa Lund. Thank you so much for showing up to Independent Thought today. Thank you. Long time listener, first time speaker. Yes, always glad to get someone new inside of the podcast. (laughs) So for today's episode, everyone, I'll be joined by this panel and we're talking about a host of topics. We're talking about the Chauvin trial, uh, some thoughts on student debt cancellation and Biden's new infrastructure plan, which he is dubbing Uh, the American Jobs Plan, and the American Families Plan. I guess they're two separate plans, but they're technically one plan. We'll get to that in a little bit. So as we get into these three different topics, the first thing that we're going to do here is talk about the Chauvin trial, which just wrapped up about two weeks ago now, roughly. And I just kind of want to just get everyone's thoughts on the trial itself and what stood out to you about it. Did you agree with the verdict? Uh, let me start off with you, Lloyd. Did you agree with essentially what the outcome of this trial was? I mean, I basically do, right? I, I feel bad. This is maybe not the not the sexiest take, but I do feel bad for like Mr. Chauvin because society failed him, right? Like they they allowed him a twenty year police career where he was you know free to essentially abuse and and kind of you know subjugate citizens and that's something that we've been we've been you know pushing back against and it culminated to the death of someone like this and it's just it's just bad all around but yeah i mean you can't kill somebody on camera and then expect to get away with it like that's kind of silly if you ask me so i, I think yeah i think it's a step in the right direction i think we need to rethink you know police immunity you know qualified immunity um just policing in general military weapons to police these they got these ACOG sites on these like uh, gas launchers that are just hip fire weapons. Like, I think we, I think, I think it really shows that we really do need to rethink our policing. And yeah, it's a, it's a good verdict in my opinion. Mostly good verdict. Okay. Well, I appreciate your take on that. Uh, let me get somebody else in here. Uh, 
Hunter, I'm going to save you for last. No offense. <laughs> Carissa, won't you tell me what was your take on the Chauvin trial? Did you agree with the overall outcome of the trial? I did. I think it's uh, one of those things that we've kind of had to accept. It's like, I, I completely agree with Lloyd. It sucks that it got this far. And I think that it just makes us have to go back to the issue about figuring out how to reform policing because clearly what we've been doing is wrong and clearly it is failing not just one group, it's failing everybody and we could do better. And I think that's like the final message is like, this was um, a really sad result. And uh, I mean, I personally don't feel bad for Derek Chauvin because I think he, you know, he got drunk on power and he needs to learn and like other people need to learn. And this needs to be a first step to start figuring out a new system. Okay. And I would welcome that new system. Uh, but, you know, Hunter, uh, once you round us out here, what was your feelings on the verdict here? Did you think that the jury reached the right conclusion? Well, it wouldn't be fun if we all agreed, would it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, here's, here's the thing. If, if you're in a situation like that, it's not as easy as we all think it is from where we're sitting on our big high horse of, hey, you should have done this and done that. I don't think it was a good situation. It's a pretty brutal tape. Uh, and I think, but I honestly, I'm not even sure whether there were some people on that jury that wouldn't have convicted Chauvin, except for the fact that like, if I was on that jury, a friend pointed this out to me and he made a very good point, which if I was on that jury, it's not worth sticking my neck out because someone is gonna leak your name if you're the reason. Someone in that jury is gonna be convinced and will have lied to get on to that jury because they're like he needs to go to jail forever and then if you're on that jury and you were to say anything your name would get out and then you're at the very least getting death threats and have to move your family i mean so is it worth it so i'm not sure that everyone on that jury actually thought he should get i think it's 36 years 12 for each charge um you're in a really hard situation there and i i understand that like people and and it wasn't he did prop but i don't think he intended to kill him right so like manslaughter okay fine but like there's two other i don't know if people know the definitions of the charges but one of the charges that he got convicted of is like a charge for if like you shoot a gun into a crowd and like you know it's going to hurt someone but you don't have like personal intent right and then manslaughter is like i don't have intent but because of my actions someone died and then second degree murder is like in the process of committing felony assault someone dies and so i i just don't think honestly some of those like you can't both not have intent and have intent but they just wanted to hit him throw the book at him and he probably isn't that bad a guy and also and this is the big thing that i don't like about the whole thing is that i feel like he was convicted of racism even though no one ever had any evidence that he did it because George Floyd was black, he could have done that same thing to a white guy. And, of racism? That's a, I mean, everyone, everyone assumes that it was racism. BLM's in the streets saying it was racist. He killed it. He did it because he was black. It's like, no, there's nowhere in there that says that he did that because George Floyd was black. There's nothing in there. And yet that's like the reason this was made a big deal. 
Well, I think the reason that it was made a big deal was because the man died, Hunter. Um, you know, just to be a hundred percent fair here. Uh, so as we're going to kind of like round off this clip here, thank you for everyone giving me their, their takes on this. I just want to give my final take on this before we move on to the, to the student debt issue. Um, I think this was absolutely the right verdict. Um, at the end of the day, the police have an unquestionable amount of power in our country and too often it is absolutely not checked whatsoever i think i just recently did a qualified immunity episode just two weeks ago where i pointed out that since uh between the years of 2013 and 2019 that 99 percent of police officers who killed somebody faced absolutely no charges whatsoever and of that remaining one percent just the one percent that was left over uh, 75% of those people did not get convicted for the charges that were brought against them. So this is a system that's disproportionately, you know, fair and lenient to the police. So in this one particular case where this one officer got the book thrown at him and a system that's usually more than just towards them, I don't really see the unbalanced system that, uh, that we are talking about here. So that's just my final take on it, but I do appreciate everyone taking the time to give me their takes on what happened here. I'm sorry we don't have more time to focus on this because we are covering so many things in this episode, but I do welcome us to continue this conversation maybe in a bonus episode where I'll invite all my panelists back on to continue that conversation. But now I kind of want to transition to student debt cancellation. That's been in the news a lot recently as far as Joe Biden our president, whether or not he will or will not go ahead and forgive student loans like he said he was planning on. His administration has come out and said that they are open to forgive $10,000 worth of student debt for everyone who has student debt in this country uh, that is owned by the federal government, of course. And there are some Senate Democrats who are pushing the president to forgive up to $50,000 worth of student debt. And that's really where this question I now point to my panelists is concerned is one, do you think that the president should forgive some of the student loan debt? And if so, how much do you think is an appropriate number? I'm going to start with you, Carissa. I want you to come in and answer this question. How much do you think President Biden should, if he should, cancel some student loan debt. Um, coming at this from somebody who has student loans and is fully supporting canceling student loans, I think he should cancel 50,000 because I think it's gonna be the thing that A, helps a lot of the middle class, helps millennials get into like homes and revitalizes the economy and it's gonna do so much good. Plus, uh, I just think it's a really, good step. And I think we're seeing hints of maybe moving towards some form of cancellation in the infrastructure bill itself. Not to tease that too much, but I think we're seeing the essence of a couple of things that might be coming through there with different parts of his plans for education and seeing that, you know, I think it's high time that if America wants to be a superpower, like we have to invest in education, which means we have to invest in the people who are getting educated, which means we need to cancel student debt. I okay. think, yeah, that's it. Woo, party, get rid of it. <laughs> All right, thank you, Carissa. Uh, Lloyd, why don't you jump in here? What is your take on this? 
Uh, well, you're your resident libertarian here, you know. Uh, it's kind of two things, right? Like at, fir at first glance, it's a very uncomfortable idea, but um, when you when you when you break down the details, it, it, if it helps, why why don't we do it? You know, like I, people get so they get so you know up in arms about things that are uncomfortable, like you know giving giving free needles to uh, addicts, right? That, that sounds like a horrible idea, right? But if it helps, why don't we do it? Like if it, if we can prove that that will make society better, like for the cost, like let's do it. And student debt's one of those things too. It's like, oh man, free handouts. Like, I mean, you can view it that way, but then also look at it from the lens that, you know, I don't know, I don't know the number, you know, economists don't know the number, but like if, if you could get rid of some of that debt, free up, free up the money for people to spend, get them out of debt, get, get them back in the workforce, you know, whatever that does, if that's a, a net benefit, like let's do it, you know, like, I, I don't see why people get so butthurt about, you know, the idea of a handout when like, if it's a good thing, let's do it. Like, like get, get over the uncomfortableness of it. Get over the idea that you didn't have student loan debt and it doesn't affect you. It doesn't matter if it affects society, if it helps the world, helps America out, like I'm all for it. And I think we've, I think they've pretty clearly shown that it's a good thing, at least at like, I don't know if the 10,000 or the, I don't know what number it is, but there's a, there's a number that's good and they've kind of proven that it can be good. So I'm all for it. Okay. Well, thank you, Lloyd, for your input on this one. And lastly, Hunter, I want you to jump in on this. What is your opinion on student loan debt cancellation? Should we get rid of it? How much? If so, what do you think? You know, I'm actually just shocked to hear. I, I got to get over the shock to hear and Lloyd be on board, you know? All <laughs> <laughs> for it. Uh, I am too. Uh, of course, I have a huge bias. I have a ton of student debt and everything. So it helped me personally. So. Uh, I'm seeing through that lens and I know there's other people that don't see it this way, but also I, I think that it's, it's weird how the system did it. At least when I, when I went, like they first in high school made it sound like if I didn't get good grades, I wouldn't be able to go to college. Right. So I got out and I was like, I can't even do it. It was like this big dream thing that I wasn't even allowed to do. And then my mom convinced me to go apply anyway. And so I applied and they said, you can get in. And of course I'm 18. So money doesn't matter. Money isn't even a thing to me at 18, or most people, I assume. And then you get in there and you're like, holy crap, they're going to let me go. So you're not worried about all this money that you're taking out. And you're not thinking about it because you're an irresponsible 18-year-old. Any other loan that there is, you either have to have collateral or credit to get. But at 18, you don't have any of those things. And they're just throwing money at you, at obscene amounts of money for these courses that end up with just a piece of paper in a lot of circumstances and people don't really get like to an incredible job that's even leading them to be able to pay it back. I, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but there's a lot of people that end up being waitresses with bachelor degrees and stuff like that, you know, which is a great job, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't pay well enough to pay off these student loans. But I think that it's almost fair in a way. Some people would say it's not fair that you get that after you took out the loans, I think that it was predatory to allow uh, the way they did the program had good intentions, but ended up preying on people and putting them in positions where they were starting out with a huge weight on their back that they couldn't do anything about. Yeah, no, I think uh, the word that you use there that sticks out to me is in fact predatory. And that's the word that I would use as well. Because when you're an impressionable child, let's say more or less, you know, when you're 17 years old and, you know, you're in your senior year of high school and you're making these decisions, you, we were all told that we had to go to college. That was the only way to compete in this economy. 
and that no one really gave you the guidance necessary to figure out, you know, maybe you should go to a community college for a couple of years, or maybe you should, you know, take some time off, or maybe you should go into a trade rather. You know, that kind of conversation really isn't had with a lot of students in high school. It's more or less just pushing people into universities. And if you look at any, even just state school, just graduation rates, a lot of the times they're less than 50%. So people are going to these schools and not even graduating and still taking on tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And the fun fact about all of this is that the federal government owns over 92% of all student debt. So as people are paying these debts, it's not even really going back into a useful place, in my opinion, it's just going straight to the pockets of the federal government. And, you know, one of the things that I was hearing against uh, Biden's like rescue plan was that some of the people who were getting these direct checks just like a couple months ago, that all they were gonna do was pay back their credit card debts and that that wasn't gonna be that much of an impact on the economy. And so the only question I have for those, for some of those people who still feel that way is why wouldn't we want to get rid of all this massive debt that's keeping people from throwing money into the economy? Because so much of people's paychecks end up going towards student debt every single month. I mean, we're talking about the average household having to spend 20% of their income just to maintain these debts every single month. It's absolutely absurd. If you know someone who is currently on the fence about student loan debt cancellation, please help them out and share this episode with them. It's <laughs> like one thing everybody agrees on. I was like, yeah. telling. <laughs> it's it's a pretty compelling thing. Student student debts are are very predatory. That was that was the good word for that. Mm -hmm. So that was the final thing I'm going to say about this. If you are interested in learning more about student debt cancellation, I did a whole episode on it called Should We Cancel Student Debt? Please check that out just a few weeks back. So now we are going to transition to the main topic for today's episode, which is this infrastructure plan that Biden has called his American Jobs Plan. And then there's the American Families Plan. I guess they're kind of like it's a combo deal. The total package comes to a whopping $4 trillion, which apparently the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was pretty upset about. They were hoping that this plan would actually come out to somewhere along the lines of $11 trillion. Meanwhile, the Republicans have already come out and said that they were hoping for a much smaller plan, somewhere along the lines of $500 billion. So there's a a pretty wide, uh, um, I, I wouldn't say consensus, but there's a pretty wide feelings about how big or small this infrastructure plan should be. But while I was doing research for this episode, the one thing that I couldn't help but notice was that a lot of the coverage on this plan currently falls under the lens of what I like to call tactical framing. And tactical framing just for a really just uh, brief idea of what it means is when you talk about a political topic, instead of talking about the substance behind it, you just talk about whether or not it's popular or if certain politicians like it or if it has a likelihood of passing or not, which I got to say, I was pretty disappointed that that was the only coverage I could really find on this uh, on this topic, with the exception of maybe like one or two articles that broke it down in detail. So I want to take a quick second here to throw some shade on the media. 
<laughs> Always time for that. Always good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now that I've kind of like, you know, aired my frustrations about that, I'm actually going to play a quick little clip for you guys just so you can also hear what tactical framing is. We'll be right back from that clip. Tactical framing sounds like when you crop your problem areas out of a Tinder photo. Or video. Or a video. But it's actually an approach to news coverage that focuses on strategy over substance. So instead of asking, is this new policy proposal a good idea? Tactical framing asks, is it popular? Can it pass? How will it play in the next election? The discussion is focused on the players and the implications for them and their political careers not the policy or its capacity to solve a problem. Kathleen Hall Jameson coined the phrase tactical framing, and she argues that this obsession with strategy is making it hard for us to understand big policy ideas. Ask yourself how much of the coverage of the Green New Deal has told you what specifically is in it. Other Republicans said the plan sounded more like communist economic doctrine. You probably have no idea what the Green New Deal is. You probably have some sense that it has to do with climate, climate change, but you probably don't know much beyond that. Okay, so I think Vox can explain explained that up a little nicely there. So tactical framing, basically just a bunch of BS and our media is doing us a huge disservice right now by not covering this plan as well as it should be covered. So we're gonna attempt to break down the substance of what's in this bill because I feel like that's you know what we should be focusing on. So the first thing I wanna do here is just ask everyone what is something that they like that is in this infrastructure plan and then we'll move on to things we don't like afterwards uh so for this particular topic i want to start with hunter hunter after looking over the infrastructure plan and you can combine the two if you would like um because they're technically trying to be passed together from what i understand what is something that you like about the infrastructure plan so i i don't see it in the in the handy dandy pie chart I have over here, but I believe there is going, I believe it's part of the plan that there's going to be 25,000 for first time homeowners in assistance for down payment and stuff like, but they're going to do like tax credits at the end of the year. So basically if you get a house, mm -hmm. you get 25 K or I, I think it might be 15 K. There's some big amount of money that basically you get a tax credit for at the end of the year. And Personal bias, obviously, I'm going to love that deal because I'm getting a house. But also, I think that we have a huge problem in America um, where there's a lot less people getting homes a lot later in life. And it's actually hurting their ability to create generational wealth, which is something uh, I think for the first time in, I, I believe, the history of the United States, people, when they're asked, do you think your children will be better off than you were? Uh, people say no more than half the time now. And that is in large part because people don't feel like they can buy a home. They don't even look into it a lot of times. So I think that's a really good part of the bill. Yeah, no, I would have to agree with that. I mean, that is something that we are seeing a huge issue with in our society right now, especially as more and more large investment groups are kind of going into homes, are going into uh, communities around the nation and just buying up homes all over the place, which is why we're seeing so many housing prices kind of skyrocket around the country right now, as so many of these large just companies are trying to buy up homes and just turn all these communities into rental markets or into Airbnbs. So this is definitely an issue that we're all kind of running into. So making housing more affordable for the average person, something that I'm also very much a fan of. 
Uh, Lloyd, I kind of want to bring you in here next. What is something in the infrastructure plan that you personally thought was a good thing? So um, I actually, I'm surprised that it, it's so, it's, it's, it's very encompassing. Its scope is pretty good. I was, was really skeptical and pretty pessimistic that, you know, like it would just be this bloated bill and maybe it is right. But, but what it does do is it covers a lot of, a lot of things that we've, we've been talking about for a long time. They're the water pipes, right? That's a big one. Um, electric cars. That's a big one to me. Um, you have the bridges, you know, it's, it's, I think it's only 10 bridges, but it, it's a start, right? Like these are all things that like we've all said we need to do. We just never did it, you know? So I, I think that the, the overall scope of it is really good. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised that like, I, I know that with a with a bill this big, with this this encompassing or two bills, whatever you want to, however you want to you know call it, um, it I, I just thought it would be so so much more narrow than this, and I thought it would be so, you know, part partisan essentially. You know, it'd be something like climate change, just just climate change. Even though I would hardly call that a partisan issue, that's partisan by choice, not for, you know it's a bad reason to be partisan. But um, it's really encompassing: education, childcare, power grid. There's just so many things this covers, and I, I, I'm really, I'm really happy it does that. And it's not this narrow, you know, Democrat Joe Biden esque bill. It's, it's a really broad bill that uh, it, it, the price tag is high, but that's really the only thing, you know. So I like it. It's a, it's a very good bill, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I'm also kind of a fan of this bill. There's not too much in here that I have to complain about, but I'm gonna kind of save my, my frustrations with the bill at the very end here. Uh, Chris, I want to bring you in. What is something that you see in the infrastructure package that you find to be a positive thing? I mean, I agree with pretty much everything that's been said. It's it's a really great bill. I, I kind of look at it and I think of like a Las Vegas buffet. Like there's a little something for everybody in this bill. Like on first glance, I think one of the things that I think is really exciting to see moving forward is paid family leave. I feel like that's something that we haven't that we've talked about for forever, but would help a lot of people and would be a really great way to move our economy forward, move our people forward and get, um, just be like a, a lovely way to enter into a, a better society. But it all is really good. Like everything in it seems like it will help and be a good thing moving forward. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree. And just for the people at home who aren't familiar, we are right now looking at this, uh, from the New York Times has this, honestly, this pretty great little chart here where they break down exactly what's in the infrastructure plan uh, as far as the jobs plan and the families plan is concerned. They have it kind of broken down into multiple sections. So it's kind of uh, sectioned off just for, I'm not gonna name everything here because it's an intense amount of things to, to uh, go over, but the plan covers buildings and utilities, including money for public schools, affordable housing, eliminating lead pipes, uh, transportation. So we're talking about electrical vehicle charging stations being built all over the country as we're trying to transition to electric vehicles, money for airports, money for public transits, in-home care for people who are dealing with disabilities and older Americans. So there can be money to be able to have more people kind of stay at home to receive care versus going into nursing homes. There is a big section just for jobs, and that includes uh, trying to kind of lead the world, as Joe Biden says, on semiconductors being built here in America. There's money for research and development, uh, pandemic preparation, just in case we find ourselves another pandemic in the future. And on the family side, there is tax credits 
which a lot of people were really excited about the expansion of the child tax credit, which is supposed to cut childhood poverty in half. That's in here as a continuation to keep that going for another five years, as well as child and family support, which kind of falls into the paid family medical leave and nutrition programs. And then there's education, which kind of falls into one of the things that Biden seems to be the most proud of, which is the universal pre-K allowing everyone to kind of go to school starting at the age of three, kind of moving kindergarten back a couple of years, more or less. And then also adding on two years of community college onto the back half. So basically just adding in an additional four years of public schooling. So there is a lot going on here, particularly uh, just all across the board. Oh, and I left out my favorite part, which I don't think is actually going to happen, but I thought it was fun that they threw it in here. Whereas they're giving $80 billion to the IRS so that they can go and collect more money from rich people. Fun fact, everyone, there have been reports coming out recently that says that one of the reasons that the IRS never goes after millionaires and billionaires for tax evasion is because they don't have the funding to do so. And they don't believe that the funding that they have currently would be enough to combat the army of lawyers that the ultra wealthy have in order to go after them for tax evasion. So uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a fun fact, isn't it? So with all that being said, uh, we're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, we are gonna talk about the things that we don't like about this plan and whether or not it actually has a chance of ever becoming a reality. So stay tuned, we'll be right back from the break. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us to another episode of Independent Thought. 
before we went on the break, we were talking about the infrastructure plan that is going to be the main attraction of the Biden presidency. Uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, Joe Biden has been saying behind the scenes that he is very much interested in having his presidential legacy mirror that of a uh, Ronald Reagan or an FDR. And he sees this plan here as his ability to fundamentally transform America. And it is yet to be determined whether or not this will become a law. So before we actually you know, get to whether or not this is a legacy defining moment for his presidency or not, let's instead talk about the things in this plan that we're not exactly the biggest fans of. So I'm gonna start off with you, Lloyd. What is something about this plan in particular that you are not just really on board with? Okay, so, I mean, have you guys seen the price tag on this thing? Like, I think we get lost in the numbers, right? Like, four trillion is like a huge amount of money. Like, we, 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 we don't even know what a billion is. Like, we, we look at Jeff Bezos with, you know, $200 billion. And like, we're, oh, yeah, huh, it's Jeff Bezos, right? Like, not realizing that's like the Burj Khalifa in, in Dubai costs like 1.2 billion, you know? Like, he can buy like, you know, almost 100 skyscrapers that are the tallest building in the world just on a whim like it's worth the, i know he doesn't have liquid cash like that but the amount of money that we're throwing at this is absolutely absurd it's a it's the, the price tag is just so so big and so i know he said he was going to pay for it with like you know, increasing taxes on the rich or whatever but like that's not guaranteed none of that's guaranteed he hasn't done that yet he, you know that's just something he said he'd do there's no guarantee he'll actually do it or if he tries it it'll actually work so like if this does pass like that's just a a huge burden on our, on our, on our taxes. I, I don't know how we're going to pay for it. Like, ha have fun with your grandkids, you know, like have fun with this, this bill that, you know, may, may or may not be good. But like, again, I agree with most of the substance of it, but like, man, that number is just so freaking big. And we just get lost thinking like a trillion, whatever, what does that mean? No, that, that's, that's a thousand billion, bro. That's, that's a, a, a billion is a thousand million. Like we're talking about like ridiculous amounts of numbers here. And then the last thing is the accountability of it. Do you remember what the, uh, the last set of stimulus or whatever, where the, the, you know, Trump, one of Trump's rounds or the PPP loans, or they had like this, you know, the, the actual stimulus check, how much of that went to fraud? Some of it went to people in California prisons, you know, prison prisoners were taking the loans out. Amazon was getting loans. Um, it, it was, I think it was like millions or billions, billions. I can't remember the actual number, but it was a huge amount of, num um, uh, a huge number of, of dollars went to just complete fraud and companies that didn't pay taxes, you know? And so with this one, this one's like 10 times the size of that, you know, this one's got 10 times more, more than 10 times more different avenues. This, this is going to trickle into. And so there's just no way they're going to be accountable for the money. It's 80 billion here, 200 billion here, 70 billion here, 300 billion here. Like there's just no way we're going to keep track of that. And I guarantee you a good portion of this is going to go somewhere that's fraudulent. I mean, I guarantee it. Uh, well, you're, I mean, that's, it, it's a fair criticism to have the, there are definitely been times in the past where huge packages like this have been, well, they've been subject to being abused. I mean, that is definitely a part of our collective history, regardless of who's in office, whether it be a Democrat or Republican, unfortunately, sometimes money for projects like this does not get allocated correctly. And I think that is definitely a good conversation to bring up. For the future i think i plan on doing an episode on that myself but you know to be a hundred percent fair you know like just taking that aspect out of it because that would be an issue that comes across any single bill that goes through congress ever so that wouldn't be unique to this particular plan uh i want to bring in carissa now 
Chris, so what is something about this build that kind of just strikes you as, you know, I don't know, uncomfortable, that's something you don't like? Is there anything at all that you don't like? I mean, like I said before, I really do consider this like a, there's something for everybody in this bill. It is also not particularly like progressive in any, I mean, it is progressive, but it's not like massively progressive. It's not bold. It's obvious stuff that like, when you put it all together, it makes sense. Like, oh yeah, like let's fix infrastructure by creating more jobs and rebuild like a society where everybody gets good things like paid family leave and access to education and good drinking water. So it's like a very, um, the bill itself is like just likable, kind of like Joe, like he's just Joe. And I think the bill is like the perfect reflection of just Joe, like in a sense of a legacy, right? But I think maybe what gets interesting about it is that I think what's going to be hard or what I don't like is that it's just not going to pass easily. And it's going to be one of those things that everybody's going to try to come up with things they don't like about it, but they agree with the meat of the bill. It's just like Lloyd was bringing up, it's the financing it and how we're going to pay for it. That is just an interesting thing to me that I personally feel like we just need to pass it. So. Hey, you know what? That's, that's honestly, it's a fair thing. That's one of the things that, you know, the senators on the Republican side were talking about just this past week when they were saying that individually, there's lots of things in this bill that would be very hard for them to vote against. In particular, it was just uh, a couple of days ago that the Drinking Water and Wastewater Infrastructure Act of 2021 was passed in the Senate by a vote of 89 to two. So just taking like that particular like section of an infrastructure bill, which was just kind of geared towards improving leaky pipes, upgrading systems, uh, constructing storage tanks and to reduce lead and drinking water. So something that was very easily bipartisan, obviously. But mm -hmm. when you have a bunch of different things kind of constructed into one massive bill, it becomes a lot easier for people to kind of fight over the package as a whole versus taking these things out individually. Uh, but kind of just kind of transitioning now to you, Hunter, what is something about this bill that you particularly aren't a big fan of? So, I mean, just as a matter of specifics, we are, we're hitting like a narrow subset here, but I do think that the way that they, they word and the way that they plan the education stuff you mentioned, um, like the pre-K stuff and then the community college after high school, I think that keeps us further into the system that implies to everyone that college is necessary and that, you know, and especially pre-K, my kid's three. Uh, I think that there should be more options for him to stay at home. I think that there's been, I don't have numbers. I'm not at my computer, but there's research that's been done that shows that children that stay at home with their parents until they're four mm -hmm. are better off in the long run. And we should have more systems that instead of encouraging them to go to a daycare where the parents work, maybe give a subsidy to parents to have one of the parents stay at home with the children, something like that, I think might be a better idea. Um, and then as far as community college goes, great. That should be an option, but we should also, I guess maybe, I, I think this is a really good bill. I think that uh, four trillion is a good number, but maybe I'd throw an X, heck, as long as you're throwing money and making it rain, right? Like throw out... <laughs> <laughs> we should throw out an option for like some kind of trade or training instead of a community college for people that know what they want and don't want to learn these general skills and education things because there's a lot of 
very intelligent people that just have a, a specific interest and could really benefit by training just into that thing instead of learning about uh, how the five developmental stages of life impact you. You know, they don't care. Can I tack onto that? Okay, cool. No, I completely agree with you. I think what is going to be interesting about this bill is I think it's kind of a gateway opening up some of those doors. Like I think we have that at home care part of the bill, right? Where we're having paid family leave. And then on top of that, there's access for people who have to take care of an elderly parent or, you know, are taking care of somebody in your family that has a disability. And I feel like, you know, maybe this bill opens up to be the step to like finding a way to have, um, a parent be able to stay home and having that be an option. And like also too, I think, you know, what this bill kind of has the weird fortune of is following a once in a generation pandemic where like we are all reassessing what our lives should look like, where we're like, what is a day-to-day -day job? Like why can't, if I want to as a parent, like stay home with my kid till I'm five, yeah. but work from home? or have a balance or, you know, like I think we're at a really exciting point where this bill lets us as like America be like, we get to step up as millennials and Gen Xers and take the reins, even though it's via, you know, Joe Biden, <laughs> but we're able to like assess our society and do really cool things and support and find awesome ways to like make sure our next generations get a better life. Amen. Amen. I just like, I thought <laughs> those are nice point. takes. Those are nice takes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought really, it was a really interesting. Uh, Yours too, Hunter. Those are good takes. That was, yeah. It's an interesting thing to think about. Like, I feel like as a woman, like it's always like part of the society, right? That there's this pressure that as a matriarch, you should be caring for your uh -huh. kids. I don't have children. I probably won't because I'm a millennial <laughs> and a hot mess. But uh, <laughs> I think um, it opens the door also to, to like balance that equality where like, you know, I think there's lots of fathers that would want to stay home and like be the parent to support their children. Like I was very fortunate that both of my parents made that an opportunity in our home that they found a way that they were part of our lives like every single day and didn't have to like, like, you know, my daycare was like right next to my dad's office. And like my mom was a stay at home mom until I was like five. So like, not, not to harp on it too much, but I do want to mention, I mean, up until the 40s, probably, it was traditional for one of the parents to be at home. And I mean, it doesn't need to be the mother anymore. I think we can agree. But that should still be an option. Why is that no longer a thing that we just expect everyone to work now? You know, That's because you can't afford to do that. That's why it's not an option. And, and why is it that now society is getting better that we can no longer afford? It should be the opposite way. You know, I think, personally. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. We, we should be a... Uh living rather than working to live right at its core like i think that's also cool like coming through in this bill a little bit like this is a bill that gets us to a place where everybody gets to start enjoying things like we can be happy like sweden or whatever where everything's like <laughs> magical <laughs> <And there's> <laughs> i think if andrew yang was listening to this right now he would probably clip this and put it to the start of one of his campaign ads <laughs> He's cr he's crying right now. You know? That's my boy. That's my boy. I love Andrew Yang, and I just love the guy. <laughs> so, kind of like talking about this in particular, though, th this is one of the things that I appreciated about the the bill. You know, I, I didn't get to check this out when we were talking about things we liked about this. Was apparently out of all the jobs that this bill plans to create, 
uh, 90% of these jobs do not require anyone to have a college degree. So I really appreciated the fact that the Biden administration does seem to be trying to increase the amount of what you would call blue collar jobs. And what really needs to be happening in this country, just in my personal opinion, is a huge manufacturing push. We've sent so many manufacturing jobs overseas that one of the best ways that we'll be able to kind of like reinvigorate the economy is by having manufacturing jobs, which I think is largely what the job section of this bill is geared to do. And I mean, I think in particular, just installing one of the things we were talking about before, uh, high speed broadband to everyone in America, basically, so that there's 100% coverage, no matter where you're at in the country, that includes, you know, some of the poorest communities in urban areas or in rural communities, everyone having access to the internet, because apparently, there is still 35% of the country that has no access to high speed internet whatsoever. Like, that's absolutely insane to me. I can't believe that. Well, <laughs> to tack on it, I um, I had a traveling job for a long time, so I was traveling all across the United States, driving and teaching students here. And we would go to communities where there was like no internet or like you had no cell reception, and like they were like, we use the landline for everything, like. And so then you'd have to like do all of this extra work. The amount of steps that goes into having to do like a business phone call, when you have no access to like your cell phone to wi-fi like we literally were told to bring books because there would be nothing and everything took that much longer and you could see it in like what access they had to information and the fact that they had to drive an hour into a like nearby town to like do your easy things to shoot off a text you're like oh <laughs> like it's wild and it's everywhere it's like that was in um northern california which you would think like, oh, yeah, there's probably access here. Uh -uh. I actually have some insight into this, actually. I actually work for a company, a startup, that we service WISPs, which stands for Wireless Internet Service Providers, which are the guys you get, you know, it's the point-to-point uh, 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 -point, uh, fixed wireless, not like fiber, not like cable, you know, DSL. It's, it's the towers that shoot to an antenna on your house, right, wirelessly depending on the technology, you go five miles, 10 miles, 15 miles, whatever. Right? And so, um, yeah. And, and a lot, like some of our, some of our, um, our clients, essentially their packages are pretty low because they're getting, they're going out to some pretty rural areas and some, some of these areas that we just can't service. Like, even though they're servicing some of these areas, we'll get calls, you know, like, do you service this area? And it's like, no, you're way too far out there. Like, so yeah, this is, this is a huge thing. That was one of the things I really do enjoy about the bill is like, I, I can see it firsthand, like, man, people right now the, the zoom thing with school like it's this is really a good thing that the, the opening access to that's a good thing i have my libertarian concerns about it you know but the the principle of it is really good so first-hand knowledge i tell you this is a good thing yeah no there's i mean when you break this bill apart there are a lot of individual pieces like even if you are a person who doesn't agree on the thing being a whole like individually there's so many good things here in this bill i think one of the things that is gonna become very consequential going forward here is that they're trying to build 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the country as the electrical vehicle market does now ramp up, which I'm sure that there is no one more happy about that than Elon Musk, who currently has 81% of the electrical vehicle market here in America. So I'm sure that'll be a very happy day for him. But you know, one of the things that 
Biden also pointed out in this package was that they want to start, start investing more money into research and development because apparently what they're projecting now is that the next 10 years of technological innovation will actually be more than the last 50, which is pretty insane to me given what we've just done in the last 10. Mm -hmm. So this plan in particular is trying to address that. And according to Biden himself, he's saying that this is the largest jobs package that any president has put forth since World War II. Do you guys, I'm, I'm, well, I'm gonna start with you here. Do you think that a package like this is necessary right now? Or what, is it something that we always should have done or does it feel more necessary right now? What do you think? I mean, we just, like like, uh, like uh, Chris has said earlier, like we just came off of a, a pandemic. Like this is, this is historic. Like, there's, there's really no precedent. I mean, Spanish flu, I guess. There's really no, there's nothing to compare this to. Uh, our, the times we're into at least. So yeah, I think like it, you know, times like this require bold, bold new action. Um, we can disagree on the, you know, the, the, the details of that, but like, I'm all for like putting your foot in the water. Just, you know, just jump in, man. Like let's, let's get something done. If it doesn't work, we can, maybe we can walk it back. I know that's not how it works. You give government power, it keeps the power forever, but you know, I'm, I'm all for trying new things. This, this would be, you know, I'm very skeptical of Joe Biden. I didn't vote for the guy. Um, I mean, I like him over Trump, but you know what I mean? But I think this is something we definitely needed to be doing. So something like this needs to be done. It's, it's, it's a definitely a step in the right direction and we'll, we'll figure the details out, hopefully, you know, hash it out as we go. So yeah, absolutely. And if he, if it's, if this gets done and it is a good thing, good for Joe Biden, like, you know, yeah. you know, stomp on the haters. <laughs> Hunter, I want to bring you in here. Uh, what's your final take on this? Do you think this is an overall the right time for a package like this? You mentioned World War II. I don't remember a huge inflation problem where our money turned into firewood uh, <laughs> in that one. So I feel like after a big event, that's uh, a perfect time to do this kind of thing. And obviously I'm happy about it. So I, I think it's a very popular thing overall, maybe not among Republican uh, government, but among Republicans in general, I think it's even, and if, especially I'm an independent, a lot of independents like it. Obviously, Democrats support it a ton. So I think it's a very good, very good idea and a very good program. So, or plan, I should say. All right. And Carissa, uh, your final take on this. Uh, I fully support it. I'm really, really hopeful that, uh, you know, a certain senator who rhymes with Spansion will <laughs> let it happen and just, you know, stop being a diva. Really, oh, he like. I really do feel like he feels like he has all the power in the world right now. I'm like, yeah. sir, calm down. But, he enjoys um, the spotlight. <laughs> he really does. I think um, what's brilliant about, I mean, it's not brilliant. We had this pandemic. I think what happened during this pandemic is so many people lost their jobs and they lost the concept of a traditional job. So at this point, I think it's a brilliant idea to bring back the idea of like, there are other opportunities. There are new jobs, there's new exciting jobs that are well-paying that are going to maybe get some people into a field they haven't been in or a field they've been trying to get into that they haven't had access to yet. And I think that's gonna come through with offering the community college route. Cause I know for me personally, like I, I thrive in college. I like academia. I'm very fortunate that that route worked well for my life. But I think what community college is going to open up to is the opportunity for trade schools and for people to find that, that two year period of like, I'm 18, 
I'm not going to drop $50,000 to figure out what I want to do for a year. <laughs> like it's going to be an exciting opportunity for people to enter into a job force that they feel hopeful and optimistic that they'll get to keep a job and find a job that works for them. Yeah, no, I think that that is an excellent point to make. And I kind of just want to wrap up this conversation by talking about one of the things that you're going to hear a lot, which is the price tag. So I want to kind of wrap up this conversation around the price tag. So Joe Biden said in his speech to Congress that the way in which this plan, you know, plans to be paid for is through a tax on the rich Americans in this country, specifically the capital gains tax. So this is people who are making over a million dollars a year. They are essentially able to have a lower effective tax rate than basically everyone else in the middle class. So somehow we have a system in this country where if you're making seven figures, you're actually paying less taxes than people who make five, which makes perfect sense as we all know. So <laughs> apparently, this bill aims to correct that, and it is only going to be affecting 0.3% of the total population. Those will be the, that's the total figure of the amount of people who will be affected by this tax increase. And through just taxing that 0.3%, he plans to generate $4 trillion over 15 years, over 15 years, which is the key there. Uh, some people were trying to frame this as that they were going to spend $4 trillion in one year. It's actually over the course of 15 years to pay for this entire bill. And while he was making that point, he also said that his plan um, does not plan to add any money to the deficit. So it's supposed to pay for itself in its entirety. And he also went on to mention the fact that there were 55 corporations that paid no tax money whatsoever during 2020. And those same 55 companies that paid no taxes in 2020 made $40 billion in profit, basically just saying that it's about time that the richest in this country did something for the rest of us, which is why this whole plan is basically predicated on the idea of taxing them in order to make this entire thing work. So with that being said, there is so much more to discuss here about this plan in particular. There is honestly, we couldn't even scratch the surface because there is just so many things to talk about here. But I am hopeful that we will be covering some more of this in the future. I don't think that this plan is going to resolve itself over the next week. So there'll be opportunities to cover this again. I want to take a second to thank my panel here. Hunter, Carissa, Lloyd, thank you so much for coming on. And everyone else. I'll be right back after this final break with my final thoughts for the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us for another episode of Independent Thoughts. I am eternally grateful. And I'm also Desmond Price. So as we're rounding out this episode today, I want to just, again, thank all of my panelists for coming on. This was the first time that I've actually been able to do a panel episode all the way through. So let me know, for those of you who listened to the entire episode, how did you feel about this panel all the way through? What are some of the things you liked, some of the things you didn't like? Please DM me and comment on 
social media, preferably on Instagram. If you are following me on Instagram, uh, definitely let me know what you're thinking. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And for those of you who are not, please follow me on Instagram at Independent Thought. It is the best place to keep up with my podcast. So make sure you check it out. Now, if you liked this episode today, uh, there are two different ways that you can support the podcast. Uh, the first is please share this episode on social media. Uh, it goes a long way into kind of spreading the message uh, as far as the topics that we discuss, not only in this episode, but in previous episodes. There's lots of great episodes that have done so far uh, between some of the great guests, some of the great topics that we've covered. So please feel free to share this episode and others on social media. And if you're interested, you can scroll up into the episode description and you can join my Patreon. Uh, every time that someone becomes a member of my Patreon, it definitely goes a long way into helping me to continue to bring content to everyone. And I'm hoping as time goes on, I'll be able to hopefully get enough members in there that I'll be able to bring additional help onto the show to help me kind of get more content out every week. As I've posted on there right now, my next goal is to get to 100 members. And when that happens, hopefully I'll be able to have extra episodes come out every month. So definitely check out my Patreon. Now, as we're wrapping up this episode, the one thing that I do want to say is that obviously my guests and I all have very different um, feelings on politics. I thought that it was an important thing to have differences of opinions come on to this show that weren't specifically mine. With that being said, there were some things that were said in this episode that I didn't entirely agree with. And while I welcome everyone's opinion on this episode and on my podcast, it is my podcast, so I get to have the final word. That's just kind of how these things go. So I just want to, first of all, kind of do a slight, what I would call fact check, but also kind of just a, adding a little bit of context to some of the things that were said in this episode. So in the beginning of the episode, we were talking about the Chauvin trial and it was mentioned that, you know, the, I think it was Hunter who said that he wasn't sure how all of the jurors in particularly felt about, you know, whether or not they were actually wanting to convict Chauvin or whether or not they were feeling the pressure from the outside world. One of the jurors recently did an interview on CNN. I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, but when he came on to CNN, he did in fact say that 11 of the 12 jurors were in fact in agreement from the beginning that Chauvin should be guilty on all charges. However, apparently the deliberation, which went hours, was mostly due to the fact that the 11 of them were trying to convince the final juror that Chauvin should be found guilty on all the charges. So apparently all the deliberation was around just in fact one juror because the way that trials work is that everyone has to be in unanimous consent or else it is considered a mistrial. So just wanted to clear that up a little bit. And it was also said that uh, we weren't exactly sure in the episode how many years Chauvin is facing. Uh, between the three different charges that he is facing, it is up to 75 years in jail. He is facing 40 years for his second degree murder charge. He's facing 25 years for his third degree murder charge and 10 years for the manslaughter charge. 
Now, the sentencing hearing for Chauvin should be sometime within the next six weeks of this episode's release. Uh, the judge will come down with that, um, well, with that decision. The sentencing is done by the judge uh, himself in this particular case. And it is unlikely, in my opinion, that Chauvin will receive the full 75-year, um, well, maximum that he that comes with these charges. But, you know, I guess we will all kind of see for ourselves in due time. And I also want to say that the another question that was brought up in this episode was whether or not, you know, Chauvin meant to kill George Floyd, which in my personal opinion, doesn't really matter whether or not Chauvin, you know, was intentionally trying to kill him. The fact of the matter is that you did. It also doesn't matter whether or not Chauvin was a, a good guy or not. The only thing that truly matters, in my opinion, is that when people with power abuse that power, they have to be held accountable for abusing that power. And for too often in our country, the police have been abusing their power and paying no price for it. And so while other people may disagree with me, I personally feel as though this was a very just decision. And it should be hopefully a much more reoccurring decision as Derek Chauvin is not the only police officer in this country who's been abusing his power, which has led to death. And I mean, frankly, you know, it, it shouldn't have to come to someone dying before police officers are held accountable on some level. Check out my episode, Qualified Immunity, to hear more details about how I feel about that. And lastly, I kind of want to just wrapping up this conversation about Chauvin. You know, one of the things that was also mentioned was that, you know, this trial was made to look as though that Chauvin was a racist. And I want to briefly touch on that because it is evident to me that there is a miscommunication about what exactly, you know, uh, people were upset about. Because for some reasons, and, I, and I'm not just trying to single out, you know, my guests here today, but I see this a lot from conservative media where it would seem as though they don't seem to quite understand why so many people were upset, which is absolutely amazing to me that so many people are truly convinced that the police don't disproportionately affect people of color in this country. And I'm not sure what exactly we all need to do as a country in order to kind of communicate this better. You know, maybe that kind of comes on the parts of people like me who have a platform like this, but it is astonishing to me that there are still so many in our country who believe that there isn't an inherent bias that the police have towards people of color in this country. And I plan on coming back to this issue in the future because I feel like it is definitely an issue that needs to have more light shown on it for so many reasons. But kind of transitioning on, we also talked about the infrastructure package in this episode. One of the things that was also mentioned was, you know, whether or not the package was going to administer Fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars worth of money to people who are looking to buy a home for the first time, and that is uh, both true and not true at the same time. While there is a piece of legislation that 
uh, Biden's administration has put forward for this. It's not a part of this infrastructure package. It's a part of a separate package called the, uh, let me see here, the Down Payment Towards Equity Act of 2021. So this is a separate piece of legislation, but it is indeed offering between $15,000 to $25,000 to people who are looking to put a down payment on a first home. So that in fact is something that is circulating through Congress right now. And also in this episode, we had mentioned that one of the things being addressed in the infrastructure bill was bridges. I think we mistakenly said that 10 bridges were being built is actually 10,000, but well, 10,000 proposed to be fixed with this infrastructure bill. I, I wanna say just really quickly about that, 10,000 bridges doesn't sound like that many to me. I, I understand that it's, it does sound like a large number in essence, but I feel like there's probably a lot more bridges that need renovation or just reconstruction in this country. So that, I, that might actually be too low of a number in my personal opinion. But again, I think the last thing that needs to be said as far as the infrastructure bill is concerned is that over the next however many like weeks or months that this bill will be circulating through the news, the consistent attack against this bill, I am certain, will be that it is too expensive. And the thing that will be underreported or not reported enough is the fact that Biden claims that this bill will be completely funded by the ability for them to raise this corporate tax rate and to tax capital gains. So as you're hearing about this in the news, you know, be very weary of the most powerful Joe in Washington right now, and that's not Joe Biden, but Joe Manchin, Senator from West Virginia, a Democrat, as he will probably effectively try to uh, make sure that this tax increase does not happen because for some reason, he just seems to be against every piece of every piece of legislation that you know attempts to be passed for reasons unknown to anyone right now. So with all that being said, the sources that I use today for this episode came from just two places, kept it pretty simple today, uh, referenced, oh, I'm sorry, three places, the Washington Post, CNN, and the New York Times. Uh, unfortunately, there wasn't really much outside of that as far as people who were covering this other than, as we discussed in the episode, just tactical framing. So, Wrapping up this episode, I want to say that my feelings on this is that I think that there is going to be some version of this bill that ultimately gets passed, but it's going to be hard to see exactly what that will look like once it actually gets to the Senate for a vote, because it seems like Republicans, as it current, currently stands, have no interest in this package being as large as it is. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what the final version looks like once it finally goes to get voted on. So we will all stay tuned for that. And as always, don't let this episode be the last piece of information that you hear or research about this topic. Please go do your own research. Don't let this be the last place you get information about this, maybe just the first place. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Independent Thought. 
Uh, there are only three episodes left of this season, and then I will be taking a break for the summer. So we will be taking a hiatus for roughly about two months, maybe six weeks, kind of like play it by ear. But there'll be three more episodes, the 10th, the 17th, and the 24th, and then we'll be taking a break. So make sure that you are subscribed so that you don't miss any of those future episodes. Thank you so much for listening to this today. We will see you next time. Mm -hmm.